This is the Mosaic Church Podcast. Mosaic Church is committed to making disciples that discover Christ, connect in Christian community, and serve others and the world. I wanted to share a story about 50 plus years ago in the inner city of New Orleans. A little baby was born to an immigrant lady. And the baby was born and placed on the mom's chest. And the mom was exhausted. And then there was a gasp in the room. (gasps) And it came from the nurse. And then from the other nurse. And then it came from the mom, the 30-year-old mom who was an immigrant. And the mom started to cry and asked immediately to the doctor, can the baby be fixed? That was her first words. And that was my mom. It's interesting, those words. I just kind of learned about them recently. Can the baby be fixed? And she gasped because the baby was imperfect. As many of you know and now see, you'll probably see me with my ear. And I was born with a um, uh, half a ear, basically. Uh, What you see is after about seven plastic surgeries that didn't go so well. But my mom's first words were, can it be fixed? She cried all day until a nurse who had a wooden platform shoe because one of her legs was shorter, uh, had a stern talking to my mom and try to set her straight. What's interesting about that story, the true story, is that a dark spirit and, and I don't believe in um, like transfers of spirits, but a dark attitude, if you will, of an identity with per- perfection, a stronghold, and we sang about that, um, or lamenting in the valley in the shadow of death uh, would haunt my early life and even my uh, 20s for so many years. This, this identity of perfection of trying to be perfect or this stronghold of lamenting because something had gone wrong would haunt my very life for many years. I didn't know it until I started looking back. I have a, I have a Ross for Less, Dress for Less uh, logo up there. One thing about our Western mindset, and all of us are Westerners, we can't help it, Uh, We don't like imperfections. We don't like imperfections. We love perfect life. I follow this one comedian. I couldn't show him because sometimes uh, some of his words aren't church church appropriate. But um, he talks about what it's like to come into a Ross store. It feels like he's in, in worn, torn Lebanon and just clothes everywhere. It's pretty funny. And he talks about trying to get that, that imperfect uh, pair of jeans, the $99 pair of jeans for a dollar. So he'll put it on the table and try to see where the imperfection is and why it's only 99 cents instead of $99. And then he can't find the imperfection. He takes it home until he tries it on and then realizes, you know, the button's on the calf or something like that. But he talks about Ross dress for less. And that's where they send imperfect clothing. A buttonhole that's sewn 
uh, too small, uh, a, a, you know, a seam that's uncoming and so um, um, unraveling, and so they send it off to these, these discount stores. Or they get sent off to misfit land. Anybody old enough to know where misfit land is? Yes, some of you are. So these clothes get sent off to misfit land or a Ross department store. But clothes aren't the only ones that get sent off to misfit land. Sometimes grandma crosses the line, this invisible line from being an awesome senior citizen to being elderly. And in our Western world, she too gets sent off to misfit land. Sometimes they're known for other names. And every situation I'm gonna talk to you about, I know that there are nuances. I know that sometimes the, the grandparent can't stay at home. It's unsafe for them. I get that. So I'm not judging. I'm just telling you, but typically, it's a mindset of perfection that we're trying to battle. So grandma goes from being an awesome senior citizen, and then also in that one year, we don't know what year that is, uh, she gets sent off to misfit land. My father-in-law passed away six months ago, and I can say this today, uh, but he used to drive me nuts. <laughs> uh, he had, especially later on in his life, he had this, this habit of tapping, you know, and then tapping the table, or the dinner table, or he had this habit of, of touching, and I remember just being like, and Eric normally would sit next to Papa at dinner, and he's always being touched, and, uh, and I, I even know that Nana, sometimes he would just, out of the blue, just slam the table. And I remember feeling like, this is just, mm. But what I would do, wouldn't do right now to have him tap on, on my dinner table today. My own father, especially as he got older, uh, lost his table manners. He would chomp on that food, and, uh, and then he began to talk with a, literally a full mouth of food. And uh, I remember just being annoyed by that imperfection of an elderly dad who forgot his manners. Boy, what I wouldn't do right now to have a, a meal with my dad today it drove me insane, but as I look back, as I look back to those times, I'm realizing what I was really struggling with is a spirit of perfection that I was somehow wanting. I, I wanted my dinner table to be perfect. I didn't want an old man eating with his mouth full, chomping and, and, and spitting food while he talks. I didn't want that. I didn't want a grandpa just pounding the table and, and touching me. I didn't want that. There was something I wanted, which was more than that. It was I wanted perfection. I wanted, I wanted people to eat with their mouth closed and, and, and have good uh, you know, boundaries at the table. I, that's what I was, and little did I know that I, that's what I was striving for is this spirit of perfection. I miss them, these, both of these men, dearly, and I would take them imperfect today, any day, now that I know what I know now. But we live in a world we can't handle imperfect marriages. 
And in the West, we abort them so quickly. And it drives me nuts when I hear someone say, I just didn't love them anymore. And I didn't love them anymore is really a spirit of perfection that somehow you must be in a marriage, that you must be in love and have these feelings of love all the time. But I don't love you anymore is code word for I want to abort this marriage. If love was the standard to keep a marriage together, I think Robin and I would have been divorced at least 100 times. And I'm not kidding. We've been married for 34 years, and I would be lying to you if I told you that for 34 straight years, we were madly in love with each other. There are seasons, typically days, weeks, and maybe even months. I really wasn't like marking the calendar. There are times that we did not feel in love with one another. Typically, those times came uh, not at the same time, which was awesome, and I thank God for that. There are times that Robin didn't feel that towards me, and, but I did towards her, and, and maybe I didn't feel it towards her, but she felt that towards me, so uh, I just thank the Lord, but at least 100 times, uh, we did not feel in love, and I thank the Lord for helping us to avoid that spirit of perfection to to be uh, away from our family, because if that was the standard of perfection, of being in love 24-7, we would not be here today. Our country is addicted to perfection. We hate inconveniences. It's that same dark spirit. We don't like imperfect clothes. We don't like imperfect marriages. We don't like imperfect kids, imperfect babies like myself. Uh, this is sometimes gets hard. I know for some people, they, they have uh, meltdowns with imperfect schedules, like someone who might show up late or, or someone who, didn't, who forgot to put something on the calendar and, and you know, people's lives begin to unravel. It's a spirit of perfection. So what do we do? We, we abort whatever life we're in and uh, we try and strive for this illusion of perfection. Like that other job is really going to allow me to be on this mountaintop experience. That other spouse is going to be perfect. That uh, other house, if we can get that house, uh, man, everything is just going to be a-okay. So we're hoping to find this elusive perfection that doesn't exist. Church family, it doesn't exist. But we've acclimated ourselves to live this perceived life of perfection. I have a next picture is this poor gentleman. If you can't see it, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> I feel this guy's pain, man. It's uh, plugs that have gone bad. And if you could zoom in, it's like all infected up here. Um, I get that. I get that, that idea of trying to hold on to somehow perfect hair. Um, I wish I could. Um, and I'm not trying to make fun of this guy, but that's the culture we live in is to hold on to perfection. 
we can uh, take that photo off and go to the next one. We don't want to look at it too much. And as Christians, we have to be careful. That's the spirit of this world, of, of striving for this perfection. Uh, we, you know, we're careful that we, don't, we just have this mentality that we only want to live on the mountaintop. Well, we don't want to live in the valley. That's interesting. In America, if you have money, you live up in the mountains. Uh, in South America, the poor people lived up in the mountains. In Colombia, like, oh, that's us. And so it's, I'm sure it's changed a bit, but back in the day, it was, it was like opposite, you know. But we want to live on the mountaintop. We don't want to live down in the valley, the valley of elderly parents or, or um, disru- unruly kids or a loveless marriage or insubordinate kids uh, or emotionally or physically challenged kids or losing our hair valley or saggy skin valley. And there's a story in the Bible that kind of triggered my message this morning. You know, my message was supposed to be how to hear the voice of God and how to hear God. And, and I believe this kind of uh, will weave, uh, weave together in that. If you have your Bibles, you're going to have to read this. Uh, it's a really interesting story in 1 Kings chapter 20. It's about four minutes of reading. Now, I think almost all of you can handle about, uh, you may have the, I think you have the attention span to handle about four minutes of reading. So just bear with me. I'm going to try to do the best I can. I'm not a great out, uh, you know, out loud reader like my wife. My grandkids refuse to let me read out loud. And I finally begged them. I begged, literally got on my knees and begged them, can I read at least a page? And, um, my grandkids are pretty smart, and so I read the title page, and Ellie goes, that's your page. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like no, it isn't. And so I stood up, and, and you should hear Robin uh, read out loud. She just, and she, you would hire her at the library, okay? That's how good she is. So I decided, I get up, and I have the book, and I fold it, you know, it's folded, and I'm, now I'm trying to read standing up. And I read the first line, and I I misread a word. But my granddaughter, Solara, is old enough to read, and she she started chuckling, you you didn't say the word right. And and then, of course, she started laughing, and the other two kids started laughing, and, and that was it. I was only able to read one line, so bear with me. So Ben Haddad attacks Samaria. And you get my reading glasses. I wear contacts so you don't think I'm getting old. <laughs> so, so here we go. So turn, uh, if you have your Bibles on your app, a hard copy, there's two lines in there. And the whole story, it's two lines that triggered this, this message in my heart. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army, and Ben-Hadad is a bad guy, all right? He accompanied by two thir- two, uh, 32 kings. See, there we go. Good thing my granddaughter's not here. Uh, 32 kings with their horses and chariots, and he went up to besiege Samaria and attacked it. He sent messengers into the city of Ahab, king of Israel, saying, this is what Ben-Hadad says. So he says this to the king of Israel. Your silver and gold are mine, and the best of your wives and children are mine. The king of Israel answered, 
Just as you say, my lord, the king, and I, uh, my lord, the king, I and all I have are yours. The messengers came and Gad said, this is what Ben-Hadad says. I sent to demand your silver and gold, your wives and your children, but this about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send my officials to search your palace and houses of your officials. They will seize everything you value and carry it away. The king of Israel summoned all the elders of the land and said to them, see how this man is looking for trouble. When he sent for my wives and my children, my silver and my gold, I did not refuse him. The elders and all the people answered, don't listen to him or agree with his demands. So he replied to Ben-Hadad's messengers, tell my lord, the king, your servant will do all you demanded the first time, but this demand I cannot meet. They left and they took the answers back to Ben-Hadad. Then Ben-Hadad sent another message to Ahab. May the gods deal with me, be it so ever severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. It's a threat. The king of Israel answered, tell him, one who puts on his armor should not boast like one who takes it off. Ben-Hadad heard this message while he and his kings were drinking in their tents, and he ordered his men, prepare to attack. So they prepared to attack the city. Meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab, king of Israel, and announced, this is what the Lord says. Do you see this vast army? I will give it to you into your hands today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. It's a line that you may want to underline. And you will know that I am the Lord. But who will do this, asked Ahab. The prophet replied, this is what the Lord says. The junior officers under the provincial commanders will do it. And who will start the battle, he asked. The prophet answered, you will. So Ahab summoned his 232 junior officers under the provincial commanders. Then he assembled the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all. They set out at noon while Ben-Hadad and his 32 kings allied with him were in their tents getting drunk. The junior officers under the provincial commanders went out first. Now Ben-Hadad had dispatched the scouts who reported, men are advancing from Samaria. He said, if you have come out for peace, then take them alive. If they have come out for war, take them alive. The junior officers under the provincial commanders marched out of the city with the army behind them. Each one struck down his opponent. At that, the Arameans fled and the Israelites in pursuit. But Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. The king of Israel advanced and overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy loss on the Arameans. Afterwards, the prophet came to the king of Israel and said, strengthen your position and see what must be done because next spring, the king of Aram will attack you again. Meanwhile, the officials of the king of Aram advised him. Their guard, listen right here. This is where I want you to pay attention. So, King of Aram escaped, Ben-Hadad. He loses, he runs away, and he comes back, and this is what they say. Afterwards, the prophets came to the king of Israel and said, strengthen your position, see what must be done, because next spring the king of Aram will attack you again. Meanwhile, 
the officials of the king of Aram advised him, their gods are the gods of the hills. Some scripture will say the gods of the mountain or the gods of the mountaintop. And that is why they're too strong for us. But if we can fight them in the valley, surely we will be stronger than they. Let's just skip down to verse 28. Well, they get, they get beaten here. The man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think that the Lord is the God of the mountaintop and not the God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. This is what I think the Lord wants us to learn this morning. The enemy thinks that God is only God when we're on the mountaintop. That somehow the God that the Israelites serve is only powerful on the mountaintop. You know, of course, the analogy I, I look at is it's only when things are going good, when you have the right job, when you have the right relationship, spouse, your kids are, are well-behaved. Your wife is compliant. I always like to say that. I think that's from a King of the Hills episode. I use that line. This is what I think the Lord wants us to learn is to be Christians of the valley. Now, I know that doesn't sell books. It's not a, um, a pitch that you would put on Facebook. Because what we do on Facebook is like, come to Mosaic and, we'll, and you're going to live a mountaintop life experience. And I'm here to tell you, I hope that happens, but I want to encourage you how to live a victorious life in the valley. In the valley. That represents not a mountaintop experience. The number one thing I'd like for us to learn this morning is to unshackle God. So what do I mean by this? See, the Syrian king thought God was only the God of the mountaintop. And if he can get his pe the Israelite people to go down into the valley, that they will no longer have faith in God and God will lose. I'm telling you this morning that when we live in the valley, it does not mean defeat. That we can live victoriously in the valley. So unshackle God from our demands that we live a 24-hour cycle of blessing. That we would unshackle God, that we would have to live a 24-7 life of blessing and learn to live and embrace the valleys when they come. And guess what? They will come. You know, in one moment, you're laughing, and in the blink of an eye, you're crying. It happens. You know, sometimes I don't want to get cynical, but if you've seen those pictures of, of uh, bride and groom getting married, and I mean, just the way they're looking at each other, and you don't want to say, well, just give them a few, <laughs> give them a few months. There is this most precious picture of David and Ashley. I happen to be in it. I mean, the way she's just looking at him, she's just totally, 
totally enamored with David. And so, <laughs> and I'm sure she feels that all the time. Uh, probably not when he's snoring and drooling, you know, next to her. But uh, you, you'll have to see that picture. It's just beautiful. It's precious. It's innocent. Uh, but, you know, my, you know, I probably didn't think that at the time. But now it's like, eh, just give him a few months, you know. But what I'm trying to say is that living in the valley does not mean automatic defeat. And we can live victoriously in the valley. So we unshackle God from our demands of 24-hour cycle of blessing. Help us to grow up and embrace the valleys that we live in. So one moment we're laughing. The second moment we're crying. We're, uh, we're happy. We're sad. Uh, we have joy and then there's grief. Those of you who have young kids, you probably experience all that at the same time, at dinner time. You think, look at that precious child. He's so funny. She's so funny. And next thing you know, she drops the plate of spaghetti onto the floor. You have to embrace the whole thing, the whole child. Not just the child that doesn't drop plates. Not just the child that only will eat all their food, but the child that doesn't eat its food. The child that wets its bed and the child that, uh, you know, puts gum in her hair and all those things. But the same child will make you laugh and, 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 and do goofy things and, and you just find the, the most complete joy in it. And I would say that unshackle God from thinking that it only has to be the mountaintop. Sometimes it's not easy one of the biggest challenges when I was a campus minister is talking to students that have faith in the valley. What happens if you don't get married by age 25? And, and we've had some people that really struggled at 27, 28, 29, 30, and, and they, they give up. And so like, it's like the Syrian king was correct that they only serve the God, the God of the mountaintop, that we can defeat, we can defeat them if we get them in the valley. So unshackle this concept of God trying to be, that somehow God owes you a blessing 24-hour cycle. Let's unshackle God to think that our lives must be on the mountaintop. Because I will tell you, he's in the valley as well with us, right? Uh, the psalmist King David says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will not fear because what? You are with me. Not that things are right, but God is with us. Sometimes you'll hear us say from up here, I like to say it a lot, you are my reward. Lord, bless us with your presence. He is my reward. Not that everything goes great. Jesus is my reward. My mom, uh, my mother-in-law was talking about heaven, and my mom does too, and, and I'm like, heaven is being with Jesus. It's not heaven if Jesus isn't there. Jesus is our word. God is with us, even in the darkest valley, as the psalmist says. The second thing I want to encourage us is to embrace the valley. I believe a lot of our anxiousness is trying to live a life that doesn't exist. I have put this quote years ago on, it's an A.W. Tozer quote. Many of us Christians have become extremely skillful in arranging our lives 
so as to admit the truth of Christianity without ever being embarrassed by its implications. We arrange things so that we can get on with life well enough without the help of God. And at the same time, ostensibly seeking God's help. We boast in the Lord, but live a life trying to carefully, never having to really depend on him. And so one of the things I, about the valley is that it, it really causes us, if you're, not, if, you're care, if you're careful and if you're aware enough, that Lord, we need you. So our anxiousness many times is trying to live a life that doesn't exist. Number three is God, remember it's God's reason. So if you lift, look at the scripture carefully, God was not trying to defend a prophet or a king, King Ahab, or the nation of Israel. He said this, and you will know that I am the Lord. And I'm here to tell you this morning that our faith is solely based on God's grace through Jesus Christ. And we will know that he is the Lord. And we will know that he is the Lord. The last part, and then I'm gonna ask Austin to come on up. It's not all about you. That's hard, it's hard for me. Uh, we had an elders meeting yesterday morning and Adam said something that triggered uh, triggered a memory. It's not all about you. This is hard. This is, um, this is, you have to do a little deep thinking here. Adam triggered memory. There was a time where I felt like I was really down in the valley, spiritually, emotionally, and financially. I felt defeated. I was tired. And I fell prey to thinking, I want to change. So uh, this is right around when Rhea was getting married. And um, so 2005, somewhere around there. Yeah. I started looking uh, to, to take on another vocation, another church, or there was a church. Because I thought somehow that uh, life down in the valley isn't worth living I needed a mountaintop experience. So uh, I made some applications. And sometimes I like to quote Bonnie Hunt and say it like it's scripture. Bonnie Hunt is an, is an actress. And, and uh, rejection is God's protection. She likes to say that. So I've adopted it. I was rejected a few uh, times. There was one that was a very promising scenario, but at the end of the day, the Lord didn't allow it to happen. He made me live in the valley. He didn't, he didn't change. He didn't answer my prayer for change. But what I realized later on, it wasn't about me. It wasn't about me. I don't want to get emotional, but if I had, if I would have left and try to find some mountaintop experience church or ministry. I would not have uh, gotten to know and love my son-in-law, my daughter-in-law, Joanne, my other daughter-in-law, Britton. I would not know Solara, Emmett, 
Ellie, Hadley, Benny, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I'm not trying to just be nice. I wouldn't have not known you. Uh, all of you bring richness to my life. There, there really is not a person in my church that makes me go, oh, I'm really blessed. And so what I realized, the valley was not necessarily just about me and my situation. That God had a bigger timeline, a bigger picture in mind. Bigger picture in mind. And so it's humbling to hear it's not about you, but it could be about your kids. It could be about your grandkids. It could be about your great-grandkids that you don't even know exist. And so God wants to be the God of victory in your valley, and it may not be because of you. It could be because he wants to bring hope and grace and mercy to people in your sphere of influence. I know it gets kind of like philosophical and all that kind of stuff. If, you know, what happens if, if I did leave? You know, does that automatically mean I would not meet Eric? I would say that I would not meet Eric. And Britain and Joanne and all of you and my grandkids. So maybe God has bigger plans for your life than you can actually see with your own eyes. Maybe he's thinking of your grandkids or a coworker that's gonna come to know Christ because somehow you learn to be victorious in the valley. So part of the plan of living in the valley could be for God's glory. Not my glory, but his glory. All of you have experienced, I look throughout the, my audience and here, and I don't know everybody super well, but all of you have experienced valleys, have you not? And some of you are still in it. Maybe it's been, a, it's not just a season, a month. Maybe it's been a lifelong a valley. But I believe God can make your valley worthy of his glory. I'd like for us to pray, and then I'm going to ask Austin to come out. We're going to take communion together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to unshackle you. Lord, we've, we repent for thinking that somehow you are like a genie in a bottle and that somehow you must answer all our prayers of blessing. Lord, help us to embrace the valley and find victories in the, in the valley, like your, the story we just read. And Lord, we know that we want to bring you the greatest glory. And Lord, we want people to know that you are the Lord. And Lord, help us not to think that everything revolves around me and my situation in life, that you have bigger plans that you are working all things together, not just my plans. So Lord, we ask for your will to be done in our lives. Give us grace and mercy for those of us who are in the valley, and Lord, that you would help us to keep our eyes on you, 
because you truly are our reward. Thank you, Father. We want to thank you for listening. We pray that you were blessed and encouraged. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to this podcast and listen whenever you like. To find out more about Mosaic Church, please visit www.mosaicchurchtlh.com.